Hi there, my name is Liam Bishop and this is the second episode of my Interviews with Writers series. Today I'm excited to be talking to Thomas Chadwick. His debut collection of short stories, Above the Fat, were published by Splice. He's also an editor of Partisan Hotel magazine and before we chatted, he read a passage from Birch, a story in Above the Fat. Business boomed. Optimism was shooting up everywhere and bursting into flower. Music was jocular. Sport was effusive. Soon it would be possible to do the most wonderful things with computers. People woke and felt buoyant. Cereal was measured out with glee. Steam lifted from the mugs of recently reconciled marriages. Parents treated children to extravagant lunchbox items. People would turn to their loved ones and say things like, I can't wait to read the paper, and what a time to be alive. But the people have been called out before. They knew from history books and the Bible and panorama that no flower can last forever. They knew that after summer, the petals fold and fail. The leaves wither, the plant dies. The people knew that in good times, smart people put down roots. So the people built houses. People were building a whole lot of houses. To build houses, you need timber. And because Stuart's business traded solely in timber, the optimism soon wormed its way into the wood at Ford's Mill. Orders were rampant. Builders bought four by two by the pack and skirting board by the bundle. Stuart sent his lorries out full every morning and watched them return empty by lunch. Often they would be sent out again because of all the optimism about all the houses. Because business was booming and everyone was having such a great time. Because it was all so serenely upbeat. Education, 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 New Labour said. Smart people build houses. Stuart was smart. Too smart to sell timber for a living, people said. Far too smart. Could have been a lawyer, they said. Could have been a damn fine lawyer. A teacher at Stuart's school, Mr Charters, was certain that Stuart had it in him to be a damn fine lawyer. You should go to university, he told Stuart. Study law. Dad wants me to join the family business. What business is that? The timber business. So you've just read from Birch. This is a story about a man, Stuart, who has taken over his father's business selling timber in the boom years of 1997. And I was just wondering, what is the significance of all this birch? What's the significance of all this material? I'd been thinking about writing a story about birch for a very long time. I, I guess the origin of that story is actually I, I worked in a timber merchant for a couple of years, uh, no, for a year when I was younger. And I was told this story by a guy who worked there about how, and he said it very clearly. He basically told me in five minutes how the price of timber plummeted in the late 90s because of the internet. Um, I was really quite interested in ways in which things that seem quite abstract, ephemeral, um, the internet's a good example of that, built on material things and then have material effects. So I had this idea for a story that basically involved the, that taking that idea of the collapse of timber prices because of the boom in the internet, uh, which is tied directly to the fact that when the internet took off, there was more printing because people wanted to print their emails and that led to more paper. As it was explained to me, it kind of reversed the way that paper was normally made. So normally you make paper from the byproduct of a timber. When you chop down a tree for timber, you turn it to timber and everything that's left over, you turn it to paper. But because they needed so much paper, they cut down more trees and this used the byproduct bit and were left with all this timber, which more timber was then available, which meant the price went down. Anyway, so that's how I was told this story, probably in like 2000, I want to say 2006. When I came to write about it, I actually tried to look for actual evidence of this story and found none. I couldn't find any evidence anywhere. There was nothing in the internet that I could find 
about how internet and the paper trade destroyed timber prices in the late 90s. So that I just, but by that point, I was kind of already thinking about it as enough as a story that I wanted to pursue it. Then for a long time, all it existed as was I had this, basically the vision that you end the story with, which is a man or the main character surrounded by birch trees, because this is his solution to the problem that he's encountered. He's decided to I guess, circumvent the problem that's facing him and actually just go and say, right, well, if I just a byproduct, maybe I can just grow that byproduct and that will how I solve that problem. Which is also how I was originally told by my friend at the timber merchant how the problem was solved back in the late 90s, even though I couldn't find any evidence. There's yeah. no hard so, evidence of this evermore. <laughs> on I, the can, thing I that... could look again. I got to a certain point looking when I just thought, well, you're writing a fictional story. Do you need to keep looking? And I'd already, by this point, gone quite deep into the writing of it anyway. So for a long time, I just sat around like that. And eventually, I think probably about, I think it would have written in about 2015, I actually sat down and built a story around it and kind of produced the story that is now in the collection. Uh, the first story of the collection in a story called A Train Passes Through the Ruhr Region in the Early Morning. And what this appears to be is a series of glimpses. As a person, presumably seen as they sit on the train, things passing by in the window, one of the things I notice, though, and what you write is there's so much birch, it's untrue. Well, it appears to have come true in birch. But I've definitely been thinking about it, been on my mind for quite a, long, quite a long time. So when I kind of, I think I just had in my head this, it was something that had kind of followed me for a long time. The presence of the, these birch trees that had kind of merged. And I guess that reflects back onto something that I think the story, or at least I was trying to do with the story more generally, which is, as I said, trying to look for ways that these abstract things are made material. And a lot of the things in that little vignette are quite material. I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're these quite physical things. And I just basically put this out because I thought it would kind of introduce some of those ideas that I was trying to deal with definitely in the, in the Birch story. There's a few things in that that I think are really interesting. I think you talk about this idea of byproducts and it's a word that you use in birch and it's a word that you just said then and Stuart visits Sweden doesn't he and he goes to the factory of where his timber has been sourced from or he goes to the uh, place where all this birch is coming from which is in Sweden mm. but what he does when he's out there he meets a man called Dietmer uh, who is a paper salesman who's on the same trip as he is but paper is not Stuart's concern and he says it's ultimately a byproduct of the wood that he buys and what I noticed that you write about in Birch and what you alluded to there is people printing off emails and people printing off lots of things. And paper seems to be waste product. And you call it pulp, uh, which it is, but it's a, an idea for Stuart that relates to an idea of waste, I think. And there's images of him. He gets this printer himself and it spews out orders constantly. Bits of paper drop off from it and they're all over the floor. It jams up a lot with all the sheets. And I was wondering then if there's a question here of what goes into your writing process or what in, went into writing that story. I was wondering what were the byproducts of this story, maybe? In a way, I think a lot of, and I guess this is one of the sort of slight cliches of writing, which is you start trying to do one thing and end up doing other things. But certainly my experience of writing that story was to try and produce like one product of a story and actually end up producing a byproduct that was you know, that actually became the finished story. Because um, I think it actually became a story about, I, I guess, almost about someone's aspirations, but kind of the failure of those aspirations, I think. And some of that was more conscious, I think. I, de I mean, I deliberately said it in 97. That was a very conscious choice to think about born of new labour. And I, but it was written in, two, you know, in 2010, so it was written after the financial crisis. So I guess you, you can say it was written at the bookend of that period of um, history. So you chose to put it in 1997. 
yeah no I, it, I mean that was my decision I think it wasn't uh, and I think yeah I remember thinking quite consciously about that I well I think basically that vantage point gives the story a sort of pathos because even if that mill hadn't collapsed then there's the sense that these things might have booming and the optimism that starts in the story will 15 years later have receded and will be in a very different place I think that one of the reviews of the collection which put it in which again is a nice byproduct because you find things out that you didn't know but basically said that that kind of set up the project for the rest of the book which I've never really thought about before but I think I when I read that it definitely for me did in the sense that that created the space in which actually a lot of these characters who are all normally quite like thwarted and slightly despondent and things haven't quite worked out the way they wanted, but not necessarily always in a bad way. Although I think for me, Stuart became quite obsessed with the birch that he grew and actually formed a relationship partly with that. And his solution at the end is not to seek comfort in any money he might have taken from the mill, um, but to go and sort of, you know, disappear into his birch plantation, which isn't a very realistic ending at that point. But I, I think that was perhaps what I was looking for and I was perhaps looking for those slightly like irrational choices that people make around like businesses or bits of their lives that seem to be made quite rationally I, yeah I think that was the thing that I was least expecting that, that came out of writing that story. So you write in a style that when I was reading Birch and when I was reading your stories and you talk about thwarted potential and these characters who have this sense of thwartedness and you chose to write the story in a time of boom and a word you use quite a lot is boom. I'm just going to read a little extract. In an email to Emma, he sketched out his plan. This is Stuart. He could fit several hundred trees into the acreage and in England, where the growing season was longer, they could be ready in just eight years' time. Dear Emma, he wrote, I'm getting into the birch game. And it's the measurements you write there. They sketched out the very unspecific measurements with the measurements, and they're trying to create this sense of space. But it's got limits to it uh he says about fitting several hundred trees and it's that adverb just and it always seems to be a sense of potential in your characters and a sense of potential in uh particularly in Stuart that never gets fulfilled and the image of everything seeming full and this idea of booming relates to a sense of expansion but also relates to a sense of implosion and I wonder if that was with you when you were writing I wonder if that's why you chose to put it back in 1997 when you were writing it in the you know, when austerity was kicking in? I think the hardest thing I found with writing that story was actually to, if you like, compress what is probably more than a short story's worth of narrative into 5,000 words. We jump um, through the years as well, don't you? Three years of narrative. I think a lot of the other pieces in the collection tend to take a kind of very small moment and zero in on it, whereas that one was definitely the most expansive and probably trying to be a novel, I think, or trying to be something much longer. But it did mean that I felt like I really had to like have a tone or style for the narrative that was very clipped. I spent a lot of time trying to write, trying to find the right tone for things. And I think that's probably what I spent the longest time trying to do with that story, was trying to find something that kind of had that, I think this kind of quite compressed, but still have quite a weight and expanse to it that allowed me to kind of rattle through a lot of, I guess a lot of exposition really, uh, in terms of telling quite a complicated story in quite a short amount of time, and then give space to actually have a character who would give people a reason to read that story. So I needed to find space to have that personal narrative within there. And I think I could only achieve that by kind of compressing down and kind of blunting. But it's interesting that you picked up on the word boom, and I actually um, was thinking about that. And in its literal sense, explosion, which is 
explosions aren't things we look for in life. Like, oh, great, there was another explosion. That's great news, guys. Um, yet, I feel like in current sort of economic discussions, boom is like this totally okay thing. So it's very great. We've got a boom. Brilliant. Yeah, it's quite an incongruous, not even double meaning, because it, and as you said, yeah, I mean, an explosion always suggests there's going to be some kind of implosion and you have, you know, you have a fallout. You know, I don't need to hammer home the politics of the last 20 years, but I think. And that isn't really what the story is necessarily trying to, I was trying to do the story. But yeah, when I was writing the story, the, the, the tone that I was looking for came together when I had that first sentence, business boom. And that was, from that point on, I had the tone and the rhythm and it allowed me to write the rest of the story. So it was when I got to that kind of, you know, explosion that I was able to actually start to put my narrative together. Well, the tone, yeah, I don't want to, re- again, I don't want to reduce it to kind of a metaphysical commentary on what the story is you know because it's definitely not that all and you achieve this incredibly real you know for want of a better word narrative but the tone and the style really helps that i think and it does create a sort of paradoxical sense of clip but it, it does and it creates a sense of space is expanding booming perhaps but then it closes yeah. up and i was wondering as we sort of move into some of the other stories you seem to have an interest in industry and materials in the sense of a physical discernible products which are either part of or the result of a manufacturing process and this lends itself to the language that you use as you were sort of writing these stories you seem to have an interest in these people that are part of these sort of industrial processes in the second story for instance we have a man called simon who is a window cleaner and his scaffolding and platform has fallen from beneath him as he cleans the windows of a skyscraper and he's stood on the 79th floor and he's clinging on to the cracks, he's clinging on to the edge. And I wonder, much like Stuart and much like Stan and Paul, who we're going to talk about in some of the other stories, does this tie into the sense of a person or type of person that you're trying to write about that are in some way invisible or not seen and you have a particular desire to make visible? I think what a lot of these stories are trying to do is I'm trying to, I'm, I'm very interested in the way these abstract material. And I think the thing I didn't say then, which you, I, you kindly brought up now is that the way that you make those material things visible is to actually make them visible to people that are, that are affected by them. Birch, for instance, it's Stuart, it's the people, most of the people around him in the mill that work there. I think a key image for me, and, and you'd mentioned it already, was the paper churning out of the printer, but I think when I was thinking a lot about that, that the ideas that were in that story, that the idea that something is interconnected and global as the internet could have effects on tiny little tinder merchants in rural Britain and direct effects, not like indirect ones, not like, oh, you know, everyone's stopped buying timber now, but actual kind of physical effects are, are really important. And the, I think the, and the glass story, it's a similar thing. It's, although perhaps not as expansive. And I remember, I think I wrote that story when I, somewhere where I could basically I could they were building the shard in London and I used to see it all the time when I was cycling around there's a I remember going past the Tower of London once and this isn't to say that you know we should just preserve all our ancient castles and not be able to see anything but you, the Tower of London is kind of surrounded by all these glass buildings and well part of the thing I was trying to do in that story was kind of deal with the fact that like there will be people that, are, that there are people involved in that in that building there are people that it isn't just a, a shard of it's just not not just a part of your skyline, it's actually part of someone's day. I don't know if you meant that or not, but people are parts of these processes and shards is something that's mm. abstracted and broken off from something. 
I think I normally start with a subject or a, like a normally an instance, like a like a moment. Yeah, you need a character to take you through that. So I think it's not for me. Maybe it's thinking more about just making visible the processes that are taking place through the character. But I think that inevitably does mean that you develop a character. You talk about so, the process, and you talk about these people being part of these processes, and writing about the people that are involved in these processes. And I was, there's a certain idea of logic in and the cold glass in particular. And that gets quite a literal rendering uh, as Simon's hanging up there. And when he's suddenly joined by another person, a rather jolly person, which is quite at odds with the situation, it would seem. And what these two people do is they start telling jokes or the other person starts telling jokes or a joke. And he starts building this idea around a joke and the joke becomes quite important to the story. I don't say why to kind of give anything away, but why did you choose to start building this story around this discussion of jokes or was it the other way around? I don't know which way around it occurred but I think what's interesting about I guess jokes in general but definitely the joke in that context is whether or not a joke is funny does to an extent depend upon context and arguably the joke isn't that funny because of the context. It's like you know he's, he's very jolly as his character isn't he? it adds the kind of the terror of the situation that he's in and I wonder if it's this idea of a certain sense of logic that Simon is not in on or can't grasp or can't get access to. I don't think when I wrote it for a magazine, it was asking for stories about time. And so I kind of constructed the scene around finding a place where time really mattered, but then actually found that it didn't really matter at all until there was someone else there to like provide, I guess, a context. And maybe that, you know, to broaden out what I said about jokes in the sense that I think writing, a lot of writing is about finding the context in which something matters and the context in which something is meaningful. Um, I mean, very literally in the sense of when you write a sentence, you can put any number of words together, but they don't really mean anything or they don't really matter unless the context is right or that the sentences are wound up. But then also more broadly in the sense that it's about finding the structure and the order and the, the context in which a narrative fits together. It's about finding the I'm very obsessed with historical context, so that's for me. I'm always thinking about that. I know I, I always I always get confused when other writers or people don't think about historical context at the time, but that's probably much more enjoyable for them. So yeah, going back to Birch again, like I set that in that period. I wanted it to have that context because for me, what made it matter. And I think the same with some of the other stories, even if they're not necessarily so obviously set in a time, the the context of what is going on is the thing that gives them the meaning. Okay, on that, what we'll do is we'll have a short break. And we'll listen to a bit more of Birch and hear some more about Stuart and his timber business. Uh, This time I must warn you that there are a couple of instances of strong language in the reading. Everyone thought Stuart was making a huge mistake turning down the opportunity to be such a damn fine lawyer. I never even got into law school, he protested. Such a waste, they said. Stuart's loyalties were at home. That was his problem, his loyalties. He was too damn loyal by half. That spring, with optimism accumulating along rivers like froth, the foreman, Ted Coles, turned to Stuart and said he'd never seen the like. Ford's Mill was an old-fashioned merchant, which meant it moved goods. They bought timber in large volumes and sold it in smaller volumes. With the change in volume came a change in price. The change in price was the profit. Because the volumes were variable, so too was the difference in price, and so, too, was the profit. The more timber they bought, the cheaper they cost. The more they sold, the more money they made. It's economies of scale, Stuart's dad always said. To Stuart, it was just common sense. For years, Ford's mill was run by Stuart's old man and his faith in economies of scale. Roughly a year after Stuart left school and started working for his dad, 
competitor tried to buy them out. Representatives from Watts Timber Limited arrived in smart cars and pulled documents from a briefcase that said if Stuart's dad gave them Ford's mill, they would give him just shy of £1 million. It was a substantial offer, the member of the acquisitions team explained, for the rights to the business and assets. Stuart's dad poured him into a wood-panelled office with the oak table and plaque for Timber Merchant of the Year, Western Division, 1986. I'm retiring, he said. This is as much your decision as mine. Stuart looked at the numbers and tried to picture what that much money would mean. It's just a few sheds and some timber. What do they know that we don't? His dad smiled. That's exactly what I was thinking. A few years later, business burst into fucking flames. There seems to be a sense then that some of these characters are stepping into or inheriting a position that's been left to them. We've seen Stuart with the family's timber factory uh, and then in Stan standing, more literally, a man called Stan is preparing for his brother's wedding and he's borrowing his uncle's suit, of which there is a rip in the lining. Uh, and he stands in front of the mirror. He thinks about what his mother's going to say as he turns up to his brother's wedding. But it's just the idea of a rip in the lining and this idea of lineage. Do we always have a choice what we make out of the materials that we're given, either as a writer or just people? I hadn't really realised it was such a central theme of some of these stories, but now that you've mentioned it, it does make a lot of sense, which is I think a lot of them are around yeah, as you say, lineage and I guess family, for want of a better word. But yeah, I recently read uh, Mark Fisher's Ghost of My Life and he book is framed around the idea of hauntology, uh, which he is his definition of the persistence of the no longer in the present. One of the things he says in discussing that is that the family is quite a haunted structure. And I think that's when I, that, that line really resonated with me. And I mean, families are incredibly haunted structures by definition. You have this lineage between generations and the past and going to the future. I think it's, yeah, in terms of if we were to return to, you mentioned Stan in, in, in his uncle's jacket, I think that's, I guess, quite a direct investigation of the weight of that lineage and the weight of that haunted structure. For me, what Stan is really struggling with in that story is partly just to get out of the room and get out of the door, but also perhaps the weight of that, the weight of time, maybe just the weight of family structure that it's not so much the weight of his family itself. It's just the weight of what the reality of family reminds you of. And I think a wedding is a very, uh, very direct kind of interaction with um, lineages. I mean, perhaps it's probably one of the only, it's one of the more rarer moments when you do have the weight of a kind of lineage around these are events where lots of people gather to watch generations pass. So I, I don't know if, I was necessarily thinking about it so directly at the time, but I, I definitely that sense of, I mean, haunting makes it sound very sinister, but I think it is the weight of time passing. And I think that necessarily needs, you can't really have time passing without some kind of sense of regret. Or, I think haunting yeah. is very appropriate. I think if you read these stories, I don't think you see haunting as a spooky idea. Mm-hmm. I think it is a sense of, you know, what's passed down. And it's that rip in the lining. It's kind of like that, you know, that rupture in time. And you talked very specifically about time. And in Red Sky at Night, which is towards the end of the collection, there is a wedding that a man called Paul has travelled to, but he's travelled to alone. And what's similar about these stories is is that time is really important. Um, now, Paul doesn't want to be at this wedding. He's travelled alone. His wife is at home because she's heavily pregnant. And he's made a point about returning home is going to return overland by a very complicated route and that gets curtailed by a port authority strike but what i noticed when you're writing that is that you sort of regiment paul's movements what what you do do is you reference the time quite a lot and it's a digital time it's a very specific time 
And I was wondering if that idea was prevalent then when you were writing that story in The Red Sky at Night. Yes, because I think one of the things that that character is really grappling with, and I think perhaps because he's, I see him as being a slightly little bit older than some of the other characters in the book, and perhaps a little bit more self-aware than some of the other characters in the book. So I feel like he's really understood some of the things that the other characters are kind of still perhaps figuring out. So Stan, for instance, probably hasn't quite grasped. And I think, you know, those what the other characters perhaps know intuitively about time passing and or things not working out quite how you like or time's moving on. Um, Paul is much more conscious of it. But I think for him, the wedding becomes this kind of moment where great dissonance between his revelation and the behavior of everyone else around him, which I think is a not uncommon experience for people in the world where you quite often, you can, I mean, especially now, but you can definitely look at the world sometimes and the way you see it and understand it can be in those big events like or looking at global events, you can feel a great dissonance between your feeling and the, the feeling of the world. Um, so I think what he's trying to do throughout that story is, I guess, root himself in something material or something timely. Timing of the story, and I think it's in, it's in these quite short little chunky chapters that give a blow-by-by account, is, attempt, is maybe an attempt to write himself back into time to try and hold on to something. Um, and I think to an extent that's also what he's trying to do in his journey home. Crudely, like plane travel means that a journey that should be how many miles it is but several thousand miles can be done in four hours and i think that sense of untimeliness is prompts him to try and say no right well i'm going to actually navigate this route home i'm going to cross the land and i'm going to do it like this he gets very concerned by the word contracted he thinks the world is yeah. contracted you know which sort of ties in with his impending situation with his wife perhaps and you know impending pregnancy but you started off, well, near enough started off the collection with this idea of boom. And then by the end, it's this very specific concern with contraction. And yeah, it's that, the idea of writing himself into the world. And he is a bit more artful understanding of the world. And he's trying to sort of write himself. Well, I think it's a really nice way you put it. And I was wondering how mm. you see then your stories fitting into the world. It's probably quite interesting that the only story that was written specifically for the collection was that one. I think the others had all been written before. I started putting it together. Maybe with, the, I think there's two other exceptions. The, the heavy lifting stories, if you could call it that, had been <laughs> written beforehand. And I think, I feel, I mean, I'm still learning to write, but this was definitely, I can see myself learning to write when I read these, when I look at these stories. Um, and also see my, like, I think we, because we spent quite a lot of time talking about what I'm interested in. And I think it's interesting because actually to sort of reflect on the fact that these, a lot of these stories are me working out what I'm interested in, working out where I want to, put my brain and what I want to think about and in a writer's um, sense yeah definitely I think I definitely finished writing Stan Standing and thought everything I ever write is going to be like this and I don't think I've ever quite written anything like that again I see these kind of stories as kind of a, as part of just a, as, a, as, a, as a real learning process and a real way of me figuring out my I mean how to write in a lot of ways. where do I want to look what do I want to see what do I want to um, explore what am I interested in um, this, this all sounds quite self-involved but I think no, it's that idea again. You know that we talked about in Birch, but you this idea of trying to create a space for yourself and a space for you to kind of learn, perhaps you know expand as a writer. And I'm you know I'm not experienced enough to say if that process ever stops, but I don't think it ever would. And you, the best writers, maybe don't let that process ever stop. And it has a very distinct, but that's the thing. At the same time, it has a very distinctive voice and style. One of my biggest worries actually about it as a collection was that it was way too short. I never looked at it and I thought, 
remember Dan, the editor, showed it to me, and I said, Dan, this is far too short. We have to put some more stories on. He did a really good job of convincing me it would be fine. I mean, it's quite short. I guess maybe with a bit of reflection and hindsight, I think actually because those stories are doing quite a lot of work in terms of working out what they're interested in, working out, contain quite a lot. I don't know whether other writers do this, but definitely one of my techniques in writing a story is to sort of to stop it getting too long, is to try and give myself some quite clear boundaries. You notice quite a lot of the stories have these quite bounded moments. Um, Stand Standing would be one example, and he never leaves this hall. So in earlier drafts of Stand Standing, he'd kind of gone outside of the house. He'd gone to the park, he'd gone to the shop. He'd gone, I, you know, as I was trying to work out how to write it, it and became compressed and compressed and compressed and until he was just in the hall. And I guess above the fact would be another one where that I perhaps, I think by that point, I'd learned a little bit more about how I work. So I deliberately sort of set myself the challenge of writing the story just about within the time it took him to cook the egg as a way of kind of creating the constraint. So I guess in it, I can see, looking at these stories, I can see myself learning. I can see myself figuring out how to construct, how to write, find things I want to write about and how to find a way in which to write them. Well, I was going to go on to above the fat, and I think it's really interesting that, how do you say it, how, how you found out about the way you want to write. Yeah, it's it's interesting that above the fat is not reducing it to a kind of metaphysical thing at all, because it's not, but it it's kind of is, represents two different ways of approaching a task, perhaps. It's a story about a chef, the relationship with his father, and what you get is between descriptions of the chef meticulously frying this egg, you jump between interactions with his father and the chef has very sort of specific ideas about food and how it should be served and how it should be cooked and how which is because that's the way he's learned but then his father is you know lives in relative kind of mess and i don't know if the word you describe it would be revolting but to me as a reader perhaps i'm just a bit squeamish but compared to the kind of meticulous egg frying moments we see the father drinking soup out of the can and there's bits of it caught in his beard and I wondered where you situate yourself with these characters. Do you empathise with the chef's position? Do you empathise with the father's more? I think that's actually a, kind of got to the the, the centre of one of the things that this, I was trying to do with the story. And it actually came up when we were editing the story because uh, the editor suggested that maybe a couple of word choices that would have given us slightly more, given the sense that it was some of the food that was discussed. That the Because in, in the story, the... The regulars at the pub, one of the narratives is that the chef cooks all this like very pure and on, like objectively good food and the regulars don't want it. They want just, they want... Burg- anyway, they want burgers uh, and lamb chop. But yeah, yeah, and ice cream. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just pub food. And I think there was this suggestion that we change a word that would suggest that this was actually the story was also sharing the chef's perspective. And I look back on it because for me, it was quite important that the chef has this idea of what food is objectively. And, but the story shouldn't, and that the story itself should be a bit more open and let that be the chef's perspective. I was interested in this idea of the sense of best objectivity, basically, and whether or not it's whether or not there is a, an objective point at which we can say this is good, this is a nice dish of food, this is, and this is a bad one, this is a bad dish of food. And I think it becomes poignant in the story because for a large amount of the chef's life, the thing that he has with his father is this shared connection. And then the point at which that connection disappears because of his father's um, health, I guess, starts of his starting of his dementia, he finds that shared bit has ruptured. So his kind of measurement on the world, his understanding of what is objectively good and bad, is suddenly shattered. And we were talking earlier about kind of lineages and heritage and things you get. And I think for him in that story, it's the thing that he is unable to cope with is the idea that his 
his kind of yardstick on how things fit together, which for him is this understanding that this is how you cook a steak, this is how you cook an egg, ruptures, and then he doesn't really know how to cope with that. And then the story is based around the idea that the one thing that he can still have this crossover is, is, is the egg. You don't say that he's got dementia. You kind of... No, no, it's not, it's not, it's not um, stated. And what there is, is a, like you said, a lot of ideas of lineage. There's also a lot of byproducts, I thought. You know, what are the byproducts of perhaps this relationship? Byproducts of his cooking, like I said, the lamb bones, the pink meat, the, the, the patrons of the pub don't like pink meat, they don't like lamb bones. And I wondered if, you know, maybe there is something in what we've talked about in this idea of process and fitting things together. And it's not always the things that we do consciously like the chef and his frying his egg. I don't know whether or not it is always the things that we can do consciously that can you know, bring things together or whether we can always live with a sense of things connecting or, or not. People don't can be quite disturbed by seeing this waste, this excess or these byproducts that they perhaps, that they didn't associate with what they, you know, what they were trying to do. They wanted the actual product, the lamb. They didn't want to be reminded that there are consequences in that their desire for this one thing is going to have consequences for other parts of the world, other people, other points of meat. Bill Mathers is short, one of the short stories, and it's about a fictional deceased writer uh, who's left a series of notes on other famous writers and people. And it's about, the story itself is about a man documenting this dead writer, potentially trying to find his own tools to write, and maybe not finding them, and maybe not being able to put things together. I was just wondering what Mathers might represent and what the relationship with Mathers might represent. The name Bill Mathers is stolen from a Flann O'Brien novel, the character in The Policeman, I think. It was definitely a process of me. It started trying to do one thing and then the story kind of diverted and then I kind of repurposed it as a story, I think. And I, I guess that's maybe, I mean, I'm still, you know, still working on things now. I'm always trying to, you, things never quite turn out how they, how you intend them to. Um, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. But yeah, things don't always turn out how you're intended, but that's not the worst thing that happens. Book and your stories are a testament to that. And I think it's a very wholesome way of looking at not just writing, but life as well. And I think, you know, that's what I certainly took from it. And Oh, that's great. Which, you know, gives a really nice sense of wholesomeness. You can buy Thomas's short story collection, Above the Thatch, from Splice's website. You can find me on Twitter if you like, at Liam H. Bishop. And you can also join me next time when I'll be speaking to the poet Catherine Horrocks about her debut collection of poetry, Growlery, which has just been published by Carcanet. Until next time. <laughs>